Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 31, we're going to be resuming then in verse 14. Last week we looked at the material leading up and to that And you'll see I got on the board there just a real brief synopsis of where we were last week with that. Last week it was Jacob's disfavor grows. The week before that it was Jacob's estate grows. The week before that was Jacob's family grows. So that's what we've got so far. And last week you'll remember that the information that we looked at was that Jacob had been blessed. God had blessed Jacob despite Laban's best intentions of taking away the flocks from Jacob. God was behind the scenes going, well, I'm not going to let that happen. And so every time Jacob would change up the contract, God would still see to it that Jacob would be blessed. When God wants to bless somebody, there's nothing that somebody else can do to really get in the way of that, of God's blessings. And we came away with a bunch of key points. I'm not one, you know me, I'm not one to be able to limit my key points to like two or three. Uh, I usually uh, end up going way over what I should have. So I've got a bunch on the board that you can see from last week if you weren't here. If you don't have one yet, I've got a little thing today, a little piece of paper with fill in the blanks. As we go through the study today, and the study today, like I said, resuming in verse 14, going through verse 23, God willing. Verse 14 and 15, somebody mind reading those? 14 and 15 of chapter 31. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion of or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. That completely consumed our money in Hebrew, that literally means he has eaten up our silver. (laughs) Dad has eaten up our silver. All right. You'll remember last week what happened was Jacob took his wives, invited his wives, Rachel and Leah, meet them in the field to have this private discussion out there. And Jacob explained, hey, God's calling us to leave. And it was almost as if he was presenting to them the proposal to leave, right? And are they going to be agreeable or not? Here we find their response. This is the first answer we get to what Jacob had proposed in the material we saw last week. And their response is basically, hey, dad's not treating us right. Dad squandered all the money. There's no reason for us to stay. So it sounds like they're in agreement. Now, here's a situation, though. Sometimes uh, we can end up finding that family can sometimes turn out to be an obstacle in our following of God. Sometimes family can be an obstacle to following God. And I guess that's number two. If you're filling in your blanks there, I've jumped ahead a little bit. Sometimes family can turn out to be an obstacle in our following God. In this situation, the two wives could have said, no, this is dad. This is, I've lived here all my life. I'm not willing to go. I don't know what's over there. That's scary. I don't want to go. They could say that. But they don't. So in this situation, thankfully, the family is not getting in the way of following God. <laughs> thankfully, the family is, is recognizing that God is calling them and that they should go as well. The inheritance that they mention here, is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? This is the first mention of inheritance in the Bible. 
first mention of an inheritance in the Bible. This gives us also a little glimpse into the bride price and the dowry and how that all works. And it seems from this verse as well as other passages, when you put it all together, it looks something like this. Usually when a guy wants to marry a girl, he saves up lots of money. And he goes to the dad, in this case Laban. Jacob would go to Laban and say, I want to marry your daughter. Here's lots of money as a dowry or as a bride price. And if the dad agrees, the dad says, very good. And he takes the money and he holds it like as a savings, okay? Because if his daughter goes to marry that guy and that guy later on says, you know what? I'm tired of her and abandons her. Somebody's going to have to provide for her. That's what the dowry, the bride price was for. If she was to come back home because, hey, I've been divorced or my husband abandoned me or maybe my husband died, you know, died in battle or something, she would have the resources to be able to be taken care of because she's not likely to end up being able to get remarried. So it was to provide a security for her. All right. In this situation, did that happen? No. no, because did Jacob provide money when he came? Did he give money over for the women? For the wife, he only wanted one, right? He only wanted to marry Rachel. Right. He ended up proposing a deal. Hey, I'll work for you for seven years, which was more than he needed to. All right. The amount of money you get from seven years was more than the amount of money that you typically pay to marry a person that you want to marry. I mean, it was a lot more money. And Laban recognized that. Okay, I'll I'll take you up on that deal. And you remember how that worked out. He worked for seven years. And he ends up marrying the wrong one. He was tricked and given the older sister, not the younger. He was given Leah instead of Rachel. He ends up having to work another seven years to pay off Rachel. So Laban ends up getting 14 years when in reality seven was too much for one. 14 is going to be way too much for two. And so he ends up working seven years for each of them. 14 years total, more than he should have ended up working. Laban should have taken that time, that effort, that labor, and that was worth something And in a perfect world, Laban would have been contributing to a kitty of sorts for the women. Because what's going to happen if Jacob dies? What's going to happen if Jacob abandons the women? What's going to happen if Jacob divorces the women? There's no provision to take care of them. Laban's benefiting financially by having Jacob. And financially, he should be putting aside something for the women during those 14 years. Well, fast forward, it's not 14 anymore, it's 20. We've gone six years beyond that. And he hasn't put anything aside. And the women, Rachel and Leah, his daughters, resent him for that. Because in their words here, he's treated us like a foreigner, like an alien, like a stranger, like a slave. It's as if he sold us off and never set anything aside. Like he said, ah, I got the benefit. See you later. Go ahead and get out. It's as if he has already cut them off. So by this stage in their life, when Jacob is saying, hey, you know what? I feel like God's telling us to move. They're not opposed to the idea because there's no financial security they're giving up by leaving. If dad had saved, if Laban had a huge sum of money, typically what would end up happening is if you're going to move, dad would either provide it to the wife on her way out or he would keep it in reserve if she ended up having to come back and you know, being destitute or whatnot. There's no money. And because there's no money, they not only don't have any financial security, they've got resentment. So they're like, you know what? Fine. Dad hasn't treated us well. Let's go ahead and get out of here. Let's go ahead and go. Go ahead and pack up. Looking over at the next verse. Somebody might reading verse 16. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. And there they are. They're saying, do whatever God has told you. They're in agreement with his decision to follow God's plan for their lives. And that is to move from this place to more than 400 miles away. All right. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles away. 
In verse 16, you can also see this. It's for all these riches. All these riches which God has taken from our Father are really ours. What are they talking about? What riches? Because they don't have the dowry. There's no bride price. What riches are they then referring the to? Flocks. The flocks. They're referring to the flocks that God has blessed them with, right? This was the agreement. You remember after the 14 years of service, there was that six-year period of time where Jacob is working for Laban. And there's a deal made. Hey, you take these colored ones, I'll take these colored ones. And then as time would go on, Jacob accuses Laban of having changed his wages 10 times. Why? Because Jacob's flocks are growing and getting bigger. And all of a sudden Laban's like, you know what? How about I take that color and you take these? And God would still bless Jacob. Okay, let's change the contract again. And over and over this would happen. Laban's trying to make himself rich. But what's happening? God is taking and Laban's estate is getting smaller. And it's becoming an estate for Jacob that's growing. All right. So the daughters, Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, are looking at the increase of flocks that are Jacob's possession and saying, God is blessing us. All this stuff that we see. We haven't stole that from dad. That hasn't been stolen from dad. God has taken it from, from dad and given it over to our husband. All right, so that's basically what they're saying now. All these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. So what was Laban's intention? Laban's intention was to deprive them financially. Laban's intention was to have the riches for himself. But what happens? God is able to restore. God is able to restore what was lost, right? God is able to restore what the world would take away is number one. When you're filling in the blanks there, God is able to restore what the world would take away. Laban wanted to take it away. And Laban succeeded in the sense that he was getting contracts that were in his benefit. But God was able to restore God is able to restore what the world would take away. Uh, 17, somebody mind reading that one? Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels. On camels? Not cargo vans? Camels. Four by four. Not moving trucks? U-Hauls? Camels. (laughs) Camels. (laughs) Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Uh, One of the interesting things about camels is camels are, are only the possession of the very wealthy. All right, and we saw last week that Jacob is very wealthy. This is further evidence of that, very wealthy. I tell you what, though, I think of myself getting ready to move. I'm not ready to move. I'm not looking to move right now, but there is always in my back of my mind, am I going to live all the rest of my years in this house, or am I going to move someday, right? And when those thoughts come to my mind, I look around and I go, this is going to be a real pain to move, right? There's, I mean, I got junk that... You know, they say, if you haven't used it in a year, get rid of it. Oh, okay, I've got a lot of stuff I haven't used in a year, <laughs> right? And I look, and I've got stuff in the garage, and I've got, why do I need four shovels? I don't know. I've got four shovels, you know, and I've got, you know, three different rakes, and I've got all kinds of stuff, and it's going to be a pain to move someday if I have to move, and it's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take a lot of people. But back then when they moved, it didn't take a lot of time. Robert Jameson says this. This is kind of fascinating about back then picking up and moving. Little time is spent by pastoral people in moving. The striking down the tents and poles and stowing them along their other baggage, the putting their wives and children in hudas like cradles on the backs of camels or in panniers on asses, and the ranging of the various parts of the flock under the respective shepherds. All this is a short process. A plain that is covered in the morning with a long array of tents and with browsing flocks may in a few hours appear so desolate that not a vestige of the encampment remains, except for the holes in which the tent poles had been fixed. That apparently it was just a pick-up-and-go type of thing. 
I can't imagine nowadays picking up and going <laughs> in one day. You know, going from the morning looking like all is normal and then the afternoon being totally vacant. That's kind of interesting. Kenneth Matthews had a funny thing about the camels. He had a comment regarding these camels. He said, and this is a quote, camels would provide a quicker getaway than by foot. <laughs> a quicker getaway by foot. And in fact, if you look at this and the flavor of the message in the passage is that they're, they're sneaking away. They're trying to get away. All right. And we'll find out more as we, as we go. Verse 18, chapter 31, verse 18 says this. And he, this is Jacob, and he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padanaram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Do you hear the flavor of that? The author is trying to make it very, very clear that he's not stealing Laban's flocks, that he's only taking what God has blessed him with. He's only taking what's his, what he's labored for, what he's done all the hard work for. He's not stealing the leftovers that have been left behind because Laban's not home. We'll find out in the, in the next verse that Laban's not home. Verse 19, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were his father's. Let's talk about the first part first. <laughs> Laban has gone to shear his sheep. We're going to find out he's about three days away. All right, what would happen is if you raise sheep, there comes once a year in the spring when you got to get that wool and you take that wool and you shear your sheep, all right? It doesn't hurt them, all right? <laughs> Probably a little chilly after that happens. But you take the wool off of them and you're going to now sell the wool, all right? And usually you would take your sheep to a place where they do this a lot. We're going to find out in chapter 38, I think it is, that Timna is one of those places where they do this a lot. And in fact, archaeological evidence has shown that Timna has lots of things that have been found that suggest that was a center for where you would do stuff like this. All right. So you would take your flocks, you would go to this center, this place where a lot of people would bring their flocks, and you would shear your sheep and you would sell your wool and then they would get it out and put it on the loom and they would purify it, they would color it, they would do all sorts of stuff. Well, that's like payday for you. All right. If you got your flocks, that's the day you get paid. It's like once a year payday, and you can imagine if you worked all year, how much a year's wages would be worth. That's how much you're getting, and it's going to take you a little while, maybe a week. All right. In fact, in reading about this a little bit, shearing domestic sheep of their woolly fleece occurs in the spring a few weeks prior to lambing. This allows the wool to grow back during the summer to help protect against extreme temperatures. Shepherds would bring their animals to a central location where the wool was also processed, dyed, and woven into cloth. Archaeological excavations at Timna, in see chapter 38, verse 12, have produced large numbers of loom weights, suggesting that this was a center for shearing and weaving. Because this involved a journey, provisions would have had to be made to protect the villagers left behind. There would also be a celebration associated with the event after the hard work of shearing was completed. And then regarding what actually took place in the shearing and how many people you needed, Victor B. Hamilton says, Laban is absent because he has gone to shear his sheep. It required a lot of people and a lot of time, depending on the size of the flocks. One text from Mari on this subject says that 150 men are too few and that for shearing, 300 or 400 men are needed for a period of three days. Another Mari text states that shearing will continue for more than five days because of rain and lack of personnel and may last for 10 or 12 days. So you've got the three days away, all right? So right there, you've got a built-in three days. And how long is it going to take to shear your sheep? Well, it sounds like at a minimum, it's going to take three and at a maximum, almost two weeks. So you're looking at approximately at least a week that Laban's going to be gone and possibly up to three weeks. In Jacob's mind, he knows this guy that he's been working for, who's not a very friendly guy, who's cheated him several times, 
who was probably going to get hostile towards him if he was, you know, just up and decide to leave and tell him, hey, I'm going to be leaving. Maybe even try to keep his daughters by force. Maybe even try to keep all the sheep by force. In Jacob's mind, he's going, I got a, between a week and three weeks. We can get some distance in a week to three weeks. So the timing is appropriate. And it's at the end of a contract. The sheep sharing time was considered usually the end of the contract when Laban would come back to Jacob and, hey, let's renew our contract and we're going to change the terms and here we go. He satisfied his contract. So this is the time when he satisfied his contract. It's the time when Laban, the hostile father-in-law, is out of town. And you know what happens when the parents are out of town. You know, <laughs> you either have a party or you go on a trip. All right, he's going to go on a trip. All right, so he's going to take his daughters and whatnot and go. Let's look at the second part there. And Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. My translation has household idols. English translation for a Hebrew word, teraphim. Uh, some of your other translations might have images or just the word idols or household gods. These are small statues. Actually, their size can vary. In the time of David, at that point, there was one that was big enough. It was hidden in the bed to make people think it was David in the bed. So it was like life-size. All right, What they were made out of, they could be made out of precious metals, silver or gold. So they had an intrinsic value just based on the materials that they were made out of. But here we have Rachel. She's stealing the household idols. We're going to find later that Laban says these are his. All right. And so it looks like daughter is stealing from father the household gods, the household idols. We don't know what their worship was. We don't know if they worshiped many gods. That would be polytheism, all right, the worship of many gods. Or I read in one commentary that perhaps they were henotheistic, and I guess that means you worship Yahweh as first and foremost over other gods. All right, so that's a possibility as well. First time I ever heard of that word was this week. <laughs> but anyway, she ends up stealing these gods. But why would she steal her father's idols? Well, I found no fewer than 12 different reasons that are suggested. Quite frankly, let's put it this way. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us why she stole them. So we're left to speculate. Some of the possibilities could be she's concerned about the journey. And if, if I take these gods with us, these gods will protect us from evil and harm along the way on the, on the journey. Others would suggest, actually, the one that possesses these idols... Well, that's the one that gets to be the heir, the next person to take over the estate. And if I take these, then that's securing for me and my family that being heirs when dad, when Laban passes away, and that it won't be my brothers, all right, the sons that were born to Laban. Another possibility why she took it, because they're worth something. Well, here we go. We're going to take off. We need some money for the road. All right. Oh, here's some pocket change. You know, you take the idols uh, because they're worth something financially. Who knows? Maybe. Another one could be this is what she's grown up worshiping and that maybe she's never really left that. And maybe to continue that worship, she needs to take the gods with her. That's a possibility. Another one suggested that maybe she's concerned about being homesick and this will be something to remind her of home. I think it's much more than that, though. There's also a suggestion that these gods may have been to depict passed away ancestors. And that if you, if you had these gods in the form of your ancestors, that you could look to these gods to protect you or maybe even give you guidance. And then there's some other ones as well. One of them is that they're thought to bring good fortune and fertility. And you remember, this is Rachel who's <laughs> taking it, right? Well, how does that fit? How might that be of interest? She has the least kids. She has the least kids. Hey, if these things are going to, you know, maybe if there's any chance of me having more kids, I want any opportunity to make my chances better. All right. And if these things are going to make me fertile, I'll take them with me. All right. And then there's this other one, this other possibility, which I can imagine this being the case. Maybe out of spider vindictiveness. Revenge. 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 You know what? I still, I can't forgive my dad for that day that I was supposed to be the wife of my husband and instead my sister was put in place. 
that as if dad took my husband's most prized love possession and stole it from him. That was me. You know, that was me. My dad, Laban, took me and kept me, the precious thing in my husband's eyes, and kept me from him. And now I'm going to take what's most precious in his eyes. So that's kind of compelling. That's a possibility. But like I said, we don't know for sure why it was that she ended up stealing these gods. Uh, funny thing, though, is as you think about it, how powerful are your gods if they can be stolen? You know, how powerful are these gods if they can't stay in the place they want to stay? <laughs> if you could just pick them up and move them. The Bible makes fun of people that craft gods with their own hands. These gods that they make out of wood or out of metal or carved stone images, as if those can do anything, as if they have any power whatsoever. The Old Testament is thick with that. Isaiah especially, you go and you look at, and here's this man and he takes this wooden pole and he cuts it in half, and with half of the pole he makes a god and the other half he burns in the fire to warm his food. <laughs> I mean, how powerful is your god if you had to make it, you know, and you use the other half to warm yourself and cook your food? <laughs> All right, moving on from there. Victor Bree Hamilton says this, the ancient reader would not miss the sarcasm in this story, for here is a new crime, godnapping. <laughs> and then he says, it is unlikely that Rachel in the heat of the moment thought logically through the implications of her act. Hers is a quickly hatched scheme which is not without its gaping faults and oversights. You know, in her stealing of these household gods, and that's what she does, she steals them. She's actually perhaps not even aware of it, but she is actually making a life and death decision. We'll find out next week in next week's study. What she's doing here could cost her her life, whether or not she weighed that as a consequence or not. All right, so a life and death decision. But here she is, she's stealing. Thou shalt not steal. We're all familiar with that. Exodus chapter 20. It's the book that comes after this, but I'm sure stealing at this time was still wrong as well, you know, because you've got a lot of people accusing each other of stealing. Laban's probably thinking that Jacob's been stealing from him. And then uh, also this verse, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death from Proverbs 14, 12. Rachel taking these gods, she thinks, oh, this is, this is an appropriate decision for me, uh, but not realizing that this is, in the end, it leads to death, that she hasn't weighed that out. Another possibility as well is she could be thinking, you know what, dad has been stealing from us. He's been keeping the inheritance. We have no inheritance, and these will help serve as part of the inheritance that we're missing out on. We're going to take these because they're made out of valuable metals, gold or silver or something, and maybe we could sell them for something on the way, and that could be dowry that we should have been receiving from Dad. Verse 20, Then Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell that he intended to flee. Where it says there, Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian. Literally in Hebrew, that means Jacob stole Laban's heart. Isn't that strange? Isn't that a strange way to say it? Yeah. Jacob stole Laban's heart. So here we have Rachel stole Laban's gods, and Jacob stole Laban's heart. Rachel's crime was a crime of commission. She committed a crime. She took the gods. And here, Jacob's crime is a crime of omission. He doesn't tell father-in-law that he's leaving. In looking at this where it says here, the word flee in verse 20, and then you also see the very next verse there, so he fled. And then as you're looking at verse 21, not only do you have, so he fled, it also says he arose. The last time we saw the combination of he fled and he arose was when he was fleeing Esau, when his mom says, get up and go, arise and flee. And so it's kind of like come full circle. In fact, he seems to spend his time running, running from issues, running from problems. That's why he's here. He ran away from that issue that he created over with Esau. 
and he ran from there. He's, he rose and fled, and now over here, he's arising and fleeing, going back the other direction. It's kind of interesting. He spends part of his life running around, running and fleeing. Victor P. Hamilton says, It is not the text's custom to conclude with a moralizing summary, but it does so in verse 20. Jacob deceived Laban yes. by not telling him he was running away. Mine says deceive. Does it have deceive in there? Deceive, okay. Which is what Laban did to him. Yes, indeed. Even the first. Exactly right. So you've got deception. deceit going both ways. You've got his very name means deceit. It says the point of this comment is to indicate that despite all the experiences that Jacob has had, he has not yet learned his lesson. He is still a deceiver. The reference to Rachel's theft of the household gods is yet another indication that all is far from well with Jacob. Theft has been a recurrent theme as deception has been. It does not bode well for a successful return to Canaan if the Jacob who returns is unchanged from the one who left 20 years earlier. So 20 years, we've seen some growth, but still down in the heart, he's still a deceptive person. He's still a deceiver. So we've got some commentaries, though, say that was wrong of him. That was wrong of him to leave and not say anything. Yet there's other commentators that say, no, that was actually okay. Some of the commentators would point to a verse like this. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear can be one of those things that's an obstacle in our way. In fact, that's one of the things, number three there. Fear is usually an obstacle to following God. Fear is usually an obstacle to following God. That's number three. And so if his motivation is based on fear, that's probably getting in the way of him actually being as integrous of his, of his walk with God. But others would point to a verse like Proverbs 22.3, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. And maybe he recognizes this is going to be a fight, and maybe I just need to avoid the fight. What would it be here? What would it be in your life if you're going through a similar situation? Would God say you stand up and you tell somebody, you settle all accounts, you make sure everything's right? Or do you know that's going to be a problem and you avoid it? And Maybe it's a case-by-case basis. you know. And sometimes God would say this is one of those times where you try to work it out. And other times he would say, you know what, there's no way it's going to work out to avoid the conflict. So God could have instruction for us. Biblically, you could support either of those positions. Verse 21, so he fled with all he had. He arose and crossed the Euphrates River. It doesn't say Euphrates there, but that's the river. He crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. Mountains of Gilead, mountainous, forested, kind of rugged terrain, lots of sheep. Commonly in the Bible, you'll find this place is associated with shepherding and whatnot. There's even a verse in Song of Solomon. It's chapter 6, verse 5. And it says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So you have goats and Gilead being associated even in that verse there. I don't know how a person's hair looks like that, but anyway, that's what we have there. And then verse 22 tells us that Laban was three days away before he found out. And then verse 23, Laban takes his brethren with him and pursues him for seven days and overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. Dun, dun, dun. What's going to happen next? He's not happy. You know he's going to be pretty upset. And so finally, though, the fourth one that you'll see there is this. If we're going to fill in the blanks, it's our inheritance is in God. Our inheritance is in God. I had a guy, I had a hot rod one time. It was this yellow 1932 Ford five window. And that thing had a Corvette 327 engine in it. It had no hood on it. It was just this engine and this body. And it had big fat tires in the back, little skinny tires in the front. And that thing was so fast, I knew if I kept it, I was going to die. All right. So I knew I needed to sell that thing. And I posted it, and nobody was biting on it. And finally, one guy comes, and he comes to look at it. And I take him for a test drive. And, oh, man, that car was something else. 
And we get at the end of the test drive, and the radiator bursts, and it empties all the fluid on the ground. I thought, this guy's not going to buy it, because that's the hard way to sell a car is when it breaks, you know, <laughs> as you're giving the test drive. And he goes, no, I still want to buy it. And he buys it. And it comes out. The reason he's buying it, he had an inheritance come in, and he could buy anything he wants. So he bought a yacht, and now he's buying my hot rod because of an inheritance. I don't have an inheritance in this earthly life that I can look forward to where I might be able to buy yachts and hot rods. <laughs> I just don't. That's not the family I come from. All right? In our family, there is an, an inheritance. If, if there is, it's, it's very minor. It's very meager. So he, he had a different experience than I'll ever have. This is all an argument over an inheritance. But I'll tell you what. I don't really miss out on the earthly inheritance because I know I have a greater inheritance. There's a greater inheritance waiting for me. In fact, the Bible describes in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to an inheritance. As followers of God, I'm looking forward to an inheritance in heaven, not on this earth. As you go through and you look through the, the scriptures, what are the things we look to inherit? Eternal life, according to Matthew 19. We look forward to the kingdom from Matthew 25. We look forward to inherit salvation, Hebrews 1. We look forward to inherit the promises, Hebrews 6. We look forward to inherit the blessing, Hebrews 12. And Revelation 21, we look forward to inherit all things. My inheritance isn't here on earth. My inheritance is in heaven. What the world would have to offer me would pale in comparison to what God has to offer me. And if I submit myself to God, if I'm a follower of God, my inheritance that I'm looking forward to far surpasses anything you could offer me here on this earth. And it's the same for everybody in this room. If you're a follower of God, you have an inheritance waiting for you despite what your upbringing is, despite what your financial situation of your family is. All right, any inheritance that you might seek to gain here on this earth will pale in comparison to the inheritance we're going to have in heaven. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you provide for us an inheritance awaiting us, Lord, for those who have submitted their lives to you. We thank you, God, that this is eternal life and salvation that you provide for us, promises, blessings, and all things. We look forward to the day, Lord, when we'll be together with you. And quite frankly, that's the biggest benefit of the whole thing is just to be with you forever. We thank you, God, for this time on earth that you give us to work out some of the areas that we need polishing. We're rough stones, and you're going to polish us, Lord. And we pray that uh, you would help us through this process of sanctification as we go through this uh, short time, this breath of life here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful week. Thank you. <laughs>